Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. For many people here, this is the first day of the retreat. For some of you, it's the fourth day of sitting. Each moment that you're sitting, you have a few different possible flavors to the experience. Either the experience in the moment is pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral. That pretty much covers the possibilities. It's not so difficult to deal with the pleasant when it's here. It's fantastic. Finally, a moment of peace or calm until it seems to change. Then it gets a little tricky. Or the neutral experience (coughs) is bearable for a while until it starts to get boring. Well, let's have a little bit of excitement. Not too much excitement, but a little bit of excitement. And after a while, that starts to become unpleasant in itself. The unpleasant moments seem to come with a tremendous... um, constancy at times, especially in the first day of a retreat or after a few days of sitting, their subtle flavors come in in different forms, but they're still there to be dealt with. The first few days of restlessness, sleepiness, scatteredness, wandering mind, Memories, anticipations, guilt, all those things seem to be constantly barraging our mind, our experience. And on top of the bare experience of those things, or the pain in the knee, the pains in the body, there's then the reaction that we often have to those those objects of aversion. I don't like this. This isn't so much fun. In the first few days, aversion is very much the mind state that one needs to relate to in a skillful way. There's many different ways for the mind state to come up, whether it's low energy or body pain or an attachment or fear as the as the meditation starts to open up to subtler levels. Or maybe somebody just happens to be pushing your button and doing things that rub you the wrong way. Or maybe there are some high school pranksters coming by and 
having some fun. This isn't supposed to happen. And as that aversion comes up, there are a few different directions for it to go. Often it goes right back inside, directed towards ourselves. I'm really doing miserably at this. Everybody else is doing wonderfully. They're all sitting so still. I can't do this. This is too hard for me. Why is my body aching so? It's not fair. Or it might be directed outward to other people around. It's their fault that I can't concentrate. That person keeps on coughing. Just, I wish they'd stop. Well, why do they have to come in late? Or the line to lunch is moving so slowly. Everybody's finally being mindful when I'm at the end. <laughs> that starts to agitate the mind so you can't see clearly what's really going on. Or if not directed towards yourself or towards others around, just to the whole situation. This isn't the path that I think I, I'm going to choose. I think I'll like doing some Sufi dancing or chanting. might seem a little bit more fun and opening. What you experience here isn't very different from what you experience outside in the daily world. It's just seeing things in a little microcosm. It's the same mind that you bring with you from the outside. And this is a kind of laboratory setting to start to discover the workings of the mind and how you relate to different experiences and they present themselves. If you find that your mind gets locked into patterns directing towards yourself, it's very easy to get into a negative self-image. Just the strength of that, that pattern directed inward creates a self-concept that's very hard to break out of. And some people have that tendency very strongly to point outside and get into a blaming mode or feeling a victim in their life circumstances, whether it's here in the retreat or outside in, in life, in daily life. Or the mind that just seems to feel frustrated at every turn can develop a strong complaining attitude towards life. It's unfair. Life is unfair. And what we're doing here is starting to see those reactions, those patterns, perhaps with a little bit more space so we're not caught up in them. And it takes practice. That's why this is called meditation practice. Because the conditioning is so deep to have other ways of relating to experience when it's unpleasant. <coughs> You might have noticed what happens when you have an unpleasant moment and you try to get rid of it or resist it or wish it wasn't here. It doesn't usually work. 
In fact, it just ties us up more in knots when we try to resist the experience. When things are the way they are and there's not much you can do about them, you have two choices. Wish they were different and get very frustrated or open up and accept them the way they are. And so this practice is very much one of opening, opening to our experience just as it's presenting itself, whether it's unpleasant or neutral that starts to turn into boredom or pleasant that starts to dissolve and go away, leaving a sense of loss. How to open up to this this situation, this predicament that we find ourselves in. And that's really the key. When things aren't going the way we we would like, it's hard to just say, oh well, it's okay, I'll just kind of grit my teeth and hang in there. When there's really in the back of the mind some subtle hope that maybe you can trick it if you just wait out long enough it gets very tricky, very subtle. Only the one that's getting tricked is yourself. Because as soon as you've got that pseudo-mindfulness that's trying to open with a subtle resistance, a subtle agenda for how things are going to turn out, then you're more confused than ever. Because that resistance just feeds it It's like you've used your trump card. Okay, I'll be mindful, and then it'll go away. And it stays. It can be very frustrating. So, the kind of opening that I'm talking about is really not tolerating, but embracing. Using this moment's experience. And the quality of mind that I find extremely helpful in this opening process is the quality of forgiveness in the mind. Forgiveness is the antidote to the complaining mind, the mind that wishes things were different. I thought that tonight would be particularly appropriate with the the high school kids going in and perhaps stirring up a few minds here. So let's just explore forgiveness for a little while. When I say forgiveness, I don't mean a kind of mm, condescending, self-righteous stance. Well, although this shouldn't have been, I'll kind of let it be, even though it's the wrong way for it to have turned out. But really an opening, as I said, an embracing and exploring. And just as the aversion has a number of different directions it can be pointed at, so does forgiveness. Starting with 
directing it towards ourselves. When you come to sit on a retreat, there can be all sorts of hopes and images and ideals that you'd like to live up to. Being a good yogi, doing it right. It puts a lot of pressure on on the mind to compare with other people and know what's going on inside your mind, <coughs> assuming that the other people have it all together. <coughs> they can't be as scattered or as fearful as me or as down on themselves as I am. So it's a losing battle, especially if you have that streak of perfectionism that you've got to do it perfectly. I have a perfectionist streak in me that's been very deep and that I've been working with the last few years. It's changed a bit, my relationship to it, but it's still there at times. A few years ago, I realized <coughs> the, the truth of a statement that came into my mind, which is that when you're a perfectionist, you can only break even. It's the best you can do. If you do it perfectly, all you end up saying is, okay, I did that one perfectly. What about the next one, though? And anything less than perfect, and you've blown it. And so there's that constant judging what is against what you'd like it to be, how you'd like yourself to be. <coughs> there's a line in the Third Zen Patriarch it's a beautiful piece of, of Dharma wisdom. To live in harmony with the truth <clears throat> is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. What a tremendous weight it is to put that down. To just be the way you are and not worry about being perfect. If we could just give ourselves that permission, we would uncomplicate things tremendously. That means giving yourself permission to make mistakes, to blow it, even when you're trying your best, especially when you're trying your best. It's a tremendous freedom to be able to experiment, and take risks, make mistakes, and then learn from them. It makes life an adventure instead of busying ourselves with finding a safe place, a safety place of refuge. But to really experiment and explore life and explore our limits of who we are. There's a a beautiful poem that probably a number of people have heard, but many people haven't, that I like very much about this ability to make mistakes or take risks. I'd like to share with you. <coughs> this is written by an 85-year-old woman from Louisville, Kentucky, <coughs> called If I Had My Life to Live Over. 
She says, if I had my life to live over, I'd like to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I would limber up. I would be sillier than I have been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. To be able to take risks, not be so safe, it really brings an aliveness to your whole experience. Sitting here in the meditation to take risks. When fear comes up and you feel you're going to get overwhelmed, before you flee, to take the risk to open up and feel it, explore it. Or that pain in the shoulder. Before you move, see what happens if you just stay there for a while and investigate it, explore it. When there's something that needs to be said to someone outside of the retreat situation, there's a certain kind of fear around the communication. To take the risk of being sincere and hopefully communicating in a skillful way, (coughs) it brings an aliveness. Here on the retreat, (coughs) this forgiveness in not being perfect, in making mistakes, it can really start with acknowledging the sincerity that you bring to the practice, that you bring to your time here. And if you are putting in your time, if you are bringing a real commitment to do the best you can do, which might be different from the person next to you or all the other people, can you do any better than your best? You can take refuge, if you like, in your sincerity. And just acknowledge 
that that's all you can do and no need to blame yourself for how things are turning out. You don't have much control over the quality of the meditation. You do have some control over the effort that you're willing to put in. And what I say by effort, what I mean by effort, is just the effort to be present, to bring yourself back when you've wandered, very gently, very lovingly, but very sincerely, coming right back to now. Okay, let me start again right now. <clears throat> it's easy to start getting an image of what it would be like to do the meditation right. Uh, probably if we went around the room and asked what you thought an enlightened person would be like, we'd get about 90 different answers. For somebody, it might be a loving, peaceful being. For someone else, it might be an all-knowing, wise person. For someone else, deep compassion. <clears throat> There's no one way to be. It's just being yourself. There's a story about a party that was given for a Zen master when he came to America in which a number of different Zen masters were invited. And someone at the party was talking about the evening and said that some of these Zen masters were so precise they just oozed mindfulness in every action. And some others were just casually hanging out like anyone else might be. And some were just wildly dancing around the, around the room, really having a good time, living it up. And they were all Zen masters. Who was the real one? They were all Zen masters. There's no one way to be. The practice is just getting in touch with who I am, who you are. It's like you're this perfect expression of life. It's just unfolding. And the adventure in the practice is to discover what this expression is all about and to develop it to its full potential. And that starts with allowing for yourself to be just where you are right now instead of wishing you were someplace else. The conditioning is very deep to judge who you are and judge your experience. And until you can start to understand how deep the conditioning is, there's that frustration of getting lost in the judgments again and again and again. <clears throat> a few years ago, I was on a retreat doing a slow walking. I was sitting the retreat and I was all alone in a the gymnasium at the center in Massachusetts had been sitting for a few months doing very slow walking. And this particular day, I decided to see how slowly I could go, just to play a game with myself. And in the middle of this experiment, someone came into the gym who had just arrived at the center because a two-week retreat was just starting. You can feel somebody's energy and they just come from outside world. And I thought this might look very strange, very bizarre, but I wasn't going to change my 
my trip just for someone else. I was going to be true to my experience. So I carried on with the experiment. And after about four or five minutes, <clears throat> this person bolted out of the room. I could feel the frustration <laughs> happening. And as she passed my field of vision, <clears throat> the thought came through my mind, wow, I really blew her mind, didn't I? <laughs> And it was a thought that normally would escape me, but since I had been fairly quiet, I saw it in all its <clears throat> ugliness, competition, comparison, recognition. And it seemed to open up a whole new trap door of suffering and dukkha. <laughs> dukkha is the a word for suffering in, in Pali. And from that slow walking meditation, it turned to just this fast pacing like a tiger. I couldn't get out of my head no matter how quiet I got. There it was still. Until after a while, I just saw the predicament that I'm finding myself in. Just how deep the tapes are of comparison and of judgment. What can I do? Blow my head up? All I can do is start to have some compassion for the depths of that, that conditioning, those habits, so that those thoughts can come in and just to see them with some gentleness, with some forgiveness, and not believe them, not take them quite so seriously. They come and they go. Oh, that's an interesting one. Tape 18, comparison, judgment. <laughs> And this practice is very much learning to deal with the thoughts as just empty phenomena. Just coming in and going, coming in and going. No need to grab on if it's a good thought. Oh, look what a wonderful person I am for having that one that happened to pop in. Or no need to push away or cover up if it's an ugly thought or a fearful thought or a lonely thought or a sad or angry thought. What a terrible person I am for having that one. They're just thoughts. And until you give them energy, they're as empty as the sound coming and going or the breath coming in and going out. So forgiving ourselves is really where this practice starts. Forgiving your shoulder when it starts to hurt. For just doing the best it can. Holding all that tension, supporting you. Can you send some loving kindness to it? Instead of wishing that it would just right itself or go away. Forgiving the wandering mind when you see that you've spaced out for the 120th time in the sitting if you can catch yourself that, that often. There it is again. Okay, let go, start again. And each time you see it in that loving way, in that forgiving way, accepting way, you're decharging that judgment. And there, there's the chance for true compassion to develop. <coughs> 
as we start to cultivate a forgiveness for ourselves, it starts to translate to other people around us, both in the retreat and outside. When you see somebody doing something unskillful, something insensitive or out of fear or ignorance, if you can reflect on all the different thoughts that come through your own mind that cause unskillful actions, there's a chance for a connection to take place instead of condemning. So it starts with trying to understand, again, the conditioning in someone else's mind and seeing that when they do unskillful actions, they do them because it makes sense at the time. Because of ignorance or fear or attachment or hatred. There's a motivation that causes unskillful actions. And it comes down in one form or another to not seeing clearly the consequences of action. when we see somebody not living up to our expectations and judgments and we have a hard time forgiving them who's creating the suffering it comes from our own concepts of how things are supposed to be how they're supposed to be once heard Ramdas talking about fact that we could go out into a forest and look at all the different kinds of trees in the forest and it's fine for them all to be just the way they are. There's a tall tree, there's a a gnarled tree, an old one, a young one, a sapling. You don't say, gee, I wish that gnarled old tree was straighter and stronger. It's fine for it to be the way it is. But when you come back out into the world and start relating to people, I wish she'd cut her hair a little different. Why does he have to talk so much? If only, the if only syndrome. So when we have difficulty with others, it really is an opportunity to see how our expectations and ideals get in the way of accepting the way things are. Just allowing these people to be who they are. There's a lot of cruelty and a lot of suffering out in the world. And when I say this accepting people and forgiving them, that's not to mean to let let the ignorance run rampant and to not take some action against it. This practice is one of implementing clear seeing, implementing understanding and compassion. That polarity, then there's not a real chance of communication and meeting of the minds. How do you feel when somebody points the finger and blames you for doing something the wrong way in their eyes? It's hard to cop to that. It's hard to say, oh, thank you for letting me know and I'll try and change. (laughs) 
But instead, when somebody points out the unskillfulness of the action and can perhaps expose you to the possibility of a greater peace, a greater harmony, or at least shares with you the suffering that they're going through, through your actions, not with blame, but just sharing their experience, possibly, possibly you might be open and open enough to hear what they have to say. Out in the world, it's, it can be very frustrating, especially when people in power are usually not as enlightened as we would like them to be. But instead of fighting the person in power, we fight the unskillful action, the ignorance behind the activity, then we're one step removed from that polarization. Then there's just hopefully the desire to educate so that there's an understanding, meeting of the minds. On the retreat setting, it's a phenomenon known as the Vipassana Vendetta, where somebody just, no matter what they do, bugs you. You don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they come into the meditation hall, the way they eat their food, the way they dress. And there it is, an object for your free-floating aversion to grasp onto. Perfect. If you've got one, you've been given a gift. <clears throat> See how your aversion is creating more suffering in your mind. They might not have any idea you're going through that. Look at how you knot yourself up. Can't stand that person. Wish they'd leave the retreat. They might be in blissful samadhi. And there you are. <laughs> just tying yourself up. It's really a gift. How can you relate to that? See what it is that you're holding on to. Or that this aversion is just finding to hit on. And if you can't seem to forgive, <clears throat> let that person be the way they are. Or out in the world, let someone be the way they are with their unskillful actions. Especially if they're a friend. It's hard to forgive a friend. If you can't forgive, can't forgive them, then perhaps again you can start a, to direct it towards yourself and forgive yourself for not being able to forgive. Just to have some wedge of an open heart in there. Because as much as you might try, it's not so easy at times. <clears throat> Especially in the area of primary relationships or intense relationships, forgiveness becomes very hard when your partner or close relative or loved one doesn't live up to your expectations of how you'd like them to be. Mm -hmm. 
because there's a certain kind of investment in the fact that you are exposed to them. They know you all too well. And if they seem to be withdrawing their love because of not considering your feelings, then it's easy to take that on as either a loss of their love, a loss of the love that you have for them, or a feeling of unworthiness. And out of that can translate very quickly into resentment and ill will, negativity. A few years ago I was speaking with Ramdas about a relationship that I that I had that was a very painful uh, ending, somebody I really cared for a lot. <clears throat> and <clears throat> was talking about this situation. And he said, you know, it's interesting, <clears throat> you're a real romantic. I said, yep, I'm really romantic. He said, no, but you're a real romantic. <clears throat> I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you've come in here and been talking about how you ideally will see the Buddha in, in all beings and just generating feelings of kindness and connection and compassion. But when it comes to Maria, that's a whole different ball game. Somehow, you put this person in a special box where they're supposed to be just a certain way and anything different, and it's hard to allow to see that that person is just their own expression of life going through growth and growing through going through mistakes going through different feelings and changes to see that the love that you might have felt isn't in that person it's the love that comes from you and other people can touch it can open it up but where's the source of it as soon as you give it up to the other person, there's that sense of loss. I've lost my love. And that's unfortunate because then there's a kind of panic and resentment and hatred that sets in. To forgive others, to forgive our loved ones, just as being as human as anyone else, and see it as a chance to open up to our fears and attachments of how we like other people to be. A few years ago, the Dalai Lama came through uh, the meditation center in Massachusetts, and somebody asked him about the Chinese and said, "How do you feel about the Chinese? They've..." practically destroyed your culture, Tibetan culture. And he said, I'm grateful for the Chinese. They've given me such a chance to practice compassion and forgiveness. He's an extraordinary being, the Dalai Lama. But you can see the, uh, the direction, the possibility in dealing with those situations and other people So forgiving ourselves, forgiving others. And the last area that I want to talk about 
<coughs> is what I call forgiving the Dharma. If you've been doing practice for a while, that word Dharma, the reality, the teachings, might seem kind of strange putting it in the context of forgiving it, forgiving the Dharma. <coughs> but really, that's the challenge that we have with us in each moment that we're practicing here. Forgiving this situation that's arisen, whether it's wandering mind or pain in the body or old tapes. Do you have the attitude of, damn, why is this happening now? Or is it possible to have the attitude of, Where's the lesson to learn from this? Taking refuge in the moment and seeing how you can open that much more. An unwillingness to forgive, whether it's the Dharma or someone else or yourself, means that you're not recognizing one of the basic truths in this practice. And that's the truth of impermanence the truth that things change. If you haven't noticed it, things are changing. You probably have noticed it. In each sitting, the change might be hundreds of times in the course of, a, of an hour, from different moods to different sensations and experiences. And that is one of the basic laws of the universe. Things are constantly in transformation and in change. And the inability to forgive means that you're boxing an experience or a person into a frozen moment in time. If it's a person and you carry around that thought of them for days or weeks or even years, that's the way that you hold them, not seeing that we com- we're comprised of unskillful actions and skillful ones. If you can't forgive this moment, there might be the confusion that it's going to stay the way it is. And what if I get stuck here? What if I get stuck in this fear or this loneliness or this sadness and that fear just feeding it, giving it life? <clears throat> and so it's really not seeing clearly the nature of change when you're not forgiving. <clears throat> forgiving the Dharma really means letting go of control of how you think things should be or how you want them to be. And it's a little scary to let go of the control because generally we think that all hell will break loose if we don't keep our act together. It takes a lot of energy to keep it all together and you don't really do it. Have you been able to keep it all together in your life? When you let go of control and just allow for the unfolding of 
of your body and your mind and your experience and open up to it, then you're not fighting the process. There's a lot more energy at your resource to really see clearly instead of that manipulation we try desperately to have. With that clear seeing, with that clarity of mind, then there's the chance to respond appropriately to situations instead of reacting out of fear or hatred and aversion. Whether it's a response in the meditation and you're tired, it might mean during the next walking to walk a bit faster, or it's a response out in the world. Somebody doing something unskillful, instead of reacting out of anger and out of agitation and hatred, responding with some balance of mind. There's a lot more effective possibility. But it first takes a letting go of your own images, your own ideals, to just see how to deal skillfully with it. So when we practice here, in each moment, in each moment that we're mindful, that we're not clinging to the pleasant and hoping that it stays, or pushing away the unpleasant out of aversion or fear, or spacing out on the neutral and getting bored and then going for a little bit more entertainment. In each moment that we can just be with our experience as it is, we're practicing that openness, that forgiveness, that quality of acceptance of mind that allows us to see things clearly. As you see with that attitude, with that softness, with a clarity that has a soft, gentle quality to it, there's a chance to develop a real balance of mind in any circumstance. Then your peace doesn't depend on what's happening out there, but on your relationship to the moment. There's no way you can control what's happening out there really for too long. What's possible though is to develop an open, accepting, and healthy relationship to experience. And that's what we're doing here. Whether it's sleepiness, or restlessness, or pain in the body, or bliss, or quiet, how are you relating to it? And when it changes, can you let the change just be going on to the next thing without any frustration? If it's here and it's unpleasant, can you open up without resisting it, and just seeing what there is to learn from it? To develop that quality of forgiveness and openness acceptance
So <clears throat> perhaps we have time for one or two questions. In your relationship with with this person, and with myself. Right. The tapes keep coming up, perhaps, but how you relate to them is really the way to disentangle yourself from them. When it's you sitting on the cushion and you see that tape, if it's just as empty as the sky is blue there's no problem. It's only when you get caught in the content of the tape that there's the problem. And so to be aware of the thinking process occurring instead of the content of the thought and seeing the tape with that compassion, just seeing it as, as that old tape, then there's a chance to disentangle yourself from it. It takes practice, though. As far as tapes with someone else... I've been finding that very often it's easy to get into this dance with someone where you both know the steps so perfectly and know how to step on each other's toes just the right way. (laughs) And until you see the the dance that you're doing together, there's going to be blaming the other person for stepping the wrong way. Sometimes that, that requires a third person to see it in a clearer perspective. But to see the part that you play in the dance as well and both be aligned in working on the dynamics of the dance rather than in pointing out where the other person is messing up. It's possible. It's the challenge of relationship, really.
and the question is how to forgive Again, it comes back to <coughs> seeing where the root is of the unskillful action, which is ignorance. It's not to condone the person's action, perhaps to re-educate them, but to see the pain in the mind, and the suffering, not only that they're creating for other people, but if you can relate on a karmic level the suffering that they're creating for themselves to see where that ignorance to see that that's the real villain and then to go act as as firmly and as directly and as effectively as you can to undo the unskillfulness. I guess my question is regarding the compassion for the victim of this person. When does that become stronger than willingness to forgive? I don't see where they have to exclude one ex- has to exclude the other. The compassion for the victim is generally pretty easy to get in touch with. Uh, and that's, that's one place to start with your activity. It's that much more challenging to forgive the ignorance behind the person in power and then to deal skillfully in that in that context but they're both they're both situations that call for our um, clarity of mind rather than reaction and and hatred so i think we should uh, stop here this is a short walking period if you have other questions perhaps we could speak in interviews or one on one so there's uh, a little less than a half an hour for walking. Say again. Oh, uh, Stan has a yeah. has some announcements. There's a meeting going on in the chapel right now, the other end of this hall, till about ten o'clock tonight. So we'll be stay out of that area till that time. Okay. Thank you.